Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. Our guest today is James Lindsay. James is an author, mathematician, and political commentator. He has written six books spanning a range of subjects, including religion, the philosophy of science, and postmodern theory. He is the founder of New Discourses, a website where, quote, dialogue is possible and encouraged regardless of difference in politics, aiming to be responsible with our speech and thought while not feeling fettered by restrictions of political correctness, end quote. James joins us today to discuss a few things, including his new book, co-written with Helen Pluckrose, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. James, welcome to Madison's Notes. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to start in Paris. According to Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, France is under an existential threat. This threat is gnawing at France's social fabric, undermining their culture. The culprit, quoting Macron, certain social science theories entirely imported from the United States, end quote. Critical theory, the sort of theories you detail in your book. Now, I am offering to send President Macron a free copy of your book, Cynical Theories, so he can understand this all came from the French, from the postmodern. (laughs) So much of it, though. So much of it. So so take us there. Take us to the beginning, to Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. What did they have to say? Um, so these are your, your big kind of postmodern philosophers. Uh, there's some, some hairs to be split just to be nerdy between postmodernism and poststructuralism and all of this. But these were a group of guys at the Sorbonne in Paris who were doing rather, I guess, avant-garde social theory. And what they were ultimately concerned with was how power is related to language and how power is related to knowledge. Uh, depending on the focus being language primarily with Derrida and uh, the focus being um, knowledge primarily with with Foucault. And so Foucault essentially, to kind of really overboil it down, was forwarding the thesis that in order for somebody to make a claim upon the truth, that person must be authenticated as somebody who can make a claim upon the truth. Somebody must have said they're an expert. Somebody must have given them a doctorate. Somebody must have approved the methodology that they used. And that inherently for Foucault was a political process. Mm -hmm. And so rather than things like science, for example, offering us windows into the truth, it offered us windows into a culturally contextualized truth claim that a particular culture at a particular time in a particular place believes while excluding other possible claims upon knowledge. And so that's kind of simplifying Foucault's belief to the extreme. And of course, he would also have believed that power is fundamentally dangerous. He said it's not that he's saying, he actually did say, I'm not saying that everything is bad. It's that everything is dangerous, Hmm. in particular, that power would corrupt. And so the people who have the power to declare what is and is not true, have the power to put people in insane asylums. That was a major part of his work. Um, for being dissident or for being for being mad, insane, crazy. And so 
for Foucault, that was that was his his kind of big thing was how do we interrogate the the power process, the political process underlying who we get to decide as experts, which in the era era of COVID, all of a sudden becomes very um, like Foucault was kind of <laughs> kind of hitting something um, that wasn't totally crazy there. Uh, Derrida saw power written into language. They both were concerned with these ideas called discourses, which are the ways that things are talked about or allowed to be talked about or thought about really behind that. Um, but they thought of them differently. Uh, Foucault would have thought about discourses as, as kind of the ways things are actually spoken about, whereas Derrida would have seen discourses as kind of like the structure of how words within language relate to one another. Mm. Uh, you can think of it kind of like this gigantic, you know, one of those web looking maps people sometimes put of words, you know, on, on the internet or of, or of network connections or whatever, but between words. And, and Derrida's point was that meaning is not contained the, the, in, in the words themselves. The words don't point to actual things. So I'm staring at a computer and I can use the word computer. And for Derrida, that doesn't actually convey any meaning because if we were to go to the dictionary, and he said, of course, there's nothing outside of text. If we were to, to go to the dictionary and look up computer, we would not find a computer. We would find more words mm. that tell us what a computer is. And if we looked up the words in the definition of computer, we would find yet again more words. <laughs> and so for him, words relate to words, relate to words, relate to words. And meaning is actually infinitely deferred. Uh, you can't get to meaning through um, through words themselves, which is kind of going a bit far <laughs> with the idea. Um, but he also believed that there's power cooked up into the words, that many words, not necessarily all words, but many words appear in what he would refer to as hierarchical binaries, um, man and woman, for example, sure. good and bad. And they, these hierarchical binaries actually have power inscripted into them. And where the male and female was a very significant one for him under what he called phalagocentrism, um, which was, which means basically putting the penis in the center of everything. So mm. forwarding maleness, straightness, virility, blah, blah, blah. And that this creates subtle power dynamics within language that then need to be, that, that then shape our thought. Cause he was ultimately coming out of what's known as a structuralist school, which believes that language shapes how people think and how, or how society is organized is going to be reflected in the way that, uh, that, that language is organized. And so for him, he wanted to engage in a process where we start to question those power relationships between words. He called that process deconstruction. Um, and that for him would be a project that would break down these subtle structures in society that where, where power flows one way or another through the routine use of language. Um, so that's what these guys were ultimately about. They were French. They were very French uh, <laughs> in all regards. They were engaging in a French, French, French intellectual tradition of being semi-incomprehensible on purpose. Uh, the, the vibe at the time for intellectual rock star in France would have been that if people can understand more than about 70% of what you said, you probably aren't very smart. And so you, you have to like show off by being incomprehensible and saying nonsense and having long, difficult to parse arguments that may or may not actually mean anything. Um, so yeah, Foucault and Derrida, uh, the postmodern philosophers who are a significant component of what's going on in today's so-called woke movement or critical social justice movement are in fact quite French. Um, and their ideas were, they arose in the French context, they arose following people like Sartre and the existentialism of France. Um, the nihilism at the heart of postmodernism is ultimately uh, very French, uh, it comes out of existentialism. 
And so there's a deep French pedigree here to some of these ideas. But Macron does have a point that these ideas never really caught on very well in France. They had kind of a little cult following, but sociologists like Pierre Bourdieu, also French, were much more popular. Uh, the, the, the famous mimetic theorist René Girard was much more popular. Um, the postmodernists, however, became extremely popular with feminist English professors in the United States in the 1970s. And there's good reasons to believe that these people garbled postmodernism and poststructuralism, that they didn't really understand it, but they figured out how to make it very useful to their feminist activism. So that would be part of what, what Macron is saying when he says that these ideas are entirely American. They are kind of uh, an Americanification of French ideas, but then combined with postmodernism isn't the whole story. There's critical theory as well, which is from the German tradition, um, which is not French. But because it's part of part of the German tradition is ultimately Marx for critical theory and Marx borrowed heavily from Rousseau, who is French. There are lots of threads that lead back to France. And so him to say that this is, a, this is an entirely American invention um, is not quite right. But that would be kind of like saying that French fries are, are entirely an American invention. It's actually kind of parallel because they sort of took off here and really kind of became a thing. And I don't even know if they were technically invented in France or not, but um, it's sort of like that. It's actually a complicated story. So Macron has a point, but he's going too far by denying the influence that his own philosophers who were not popular in France, but who became rock stars intellectual rock stars in, in humanities departments in America. Uh, he's, he's denying their importance and also the importance that Rousseau had on the entire line of thought um, extending through critical theory. Sure. If we could back up slightly. It's a lot of stuff, I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good start. It's a big start. So, but let's, let's go here. Postmodernism. What is it? I know that that's a difficult question. It's tough. That's to a hard question too. Um, what is postmodernism? Postmodernism was originally a movement in art uh, that kind of you, you could almost explain it in art as kind of being like hyper modernism if you wanted to. I think that there's some philosopher who would probably shoot me in the knee for that. But the truth is, is what they did, the modernist movement was already getting really paranoid and skeptical. This is where you have your art like Dada and the kind of surrealist stuff started to take off. And, you know, you think people like Picasso also where, you you know, the they're exaggerating certain things and they're they're kind of pessimistic about society like Guernica is a very like anti-war kind of painting and Picasso's style lends itself uh, I had the fortune of seeing Guernica in person once actually um, it's huge but that's kind of a modernist art style that was typical in the uh, early 20th century late 19th century and it's starting to show this kind of dissatisfaction with modern society and Postmodernism started in art probably with uh, Louise Borges, and I don't think I say his name right, but it exploded from there where the, the idea of taking this kind of pessimistic um, approach where you tear down all the rules and replace them, you show that the rules themselves can be questioned by tearing them down. And rather than just doing something completely random, like maybe Jackson Pollock would do, you would then do instead something that is uh, where there are new rules, arbitrary rules, rules that are, are stupid in some way. And then that shows that the rules of classical art or even modernist art to some degree are, are arbitrary. So there's this movement in art that I want to point out that begins with the idea that the rules are arbitrary because the rules being arbitrary uh, and the rules 
the arbitrariness of the rules blocking us from authenticity is really kind of the the seed from which postmodernism grows. But nobody cares about postmodernism in art. You can like postmodern art if you're into it. You can dislike it. You can like some of it. You can hate other parts of it. Whatever you want to do. The goal, of course, was to show that the traditional expectations, the traditional means, rules, methods, etc., are ultimately just arbitrary conventions that can be replaced by other arbitrary conventions, and then they exaggerate the arbitrary part. So it's kind of like hipsterism is postmodernism, if you really want a, a vibe on what it feels like. Um, within philosophy, however, in the 1960s, you had these guys we were just mentioning, Baudry, uh, sorry, uh, Foucault and Derrida, but also later Baudrillard and uh, Lyotard and the post, uh, the kind of postmodern psychoanalyst uh, Jacques Lacan and a handful of other guys, Deleuze and Guattari. We could, you know, there are several kind of big names and there's kind of a first generation of the postmodern philosophers. And they brought that same concept into the realm of epistemology and ethics. All of a sudden it was, wait a minute, maybe everything that we take for granted, like knowing things and believing that this is right and wrong, Maybe all of that's arbitrary convention as well. Maybe that's up for grabs. And maybe we can tear down those expectations and rules and replace them, you know, the ones that society is founded upon and operate upon, and replace those with other ones that are intentionally arbitrary. And if we replace them with intentionally arbitrary ones, then it will be more obvious that they were arbitrary. And that would liberate people from kind of the ruts that they're in thinking in terms of either uh, epistemology or ethics. And so this is really kind of where postmodernism comes from. It's this extraordinarily radical skepticism of everything that we know, both um, in terms of actual knowledge and in terms of moral knowledge. That's where you start to see them focusing in, like I'd mentioned about Foucault, on the idea that power is somehow baked into all of this. And with, with people like Derrida, that the language, and even with Foucault, because how things are spoken about, the discourses shape how we how we order society and how power is transmitted. So this huge focus on language comes into the picture, which is probably why it was so popular, part of why it was so popular with English departments and humanities departments in the US later, because it's so language centered. Um, people who don't have the slightest idea what's going on in the world, but are really good at language and rhetoric can flourish in a postmodern environment where everything is basically down to words. But postmodernism becomes this movement within especially at first French intellectual thought, but then it kind of transferred to this side of the Atlantic, um, where questioning the roots of knowledge, the meaning of language, the meaning of meaning, everything kind of comes to this very, not just skeptical, radically skeptical, where we technically feel, have, have propositions like that we can't know anything. Richard Rorty, an American pragmatist postmodern philosopher, said that it's not that the world isn't out there, it's that the truth isn't out there. So truth becomes inaccessible. Uh, truth becomes an application of power, really. Um, and that's a profound shift in thinking about how, you know, our, our claims upon the truth. And so this kind of line of thought became really indicative of what postmodernism is. It has, a, in the book we, we list that it has two core principles, which we call the uh, knowledge principle and the political principle. And the postmodern knowledge principle is that truth is a cultural artifact, culturally contingent. All claims upon, whether there is no access to objective truth, every claim upon truth is ultimately an expression of the values of the culture that is claiming, making that claim on truth. Or in fact, just the uh, claim from the lived experience of the individual making the claim, although that gets tied up with 
identity being bound into culture, et cetera. So again, it wheels back to being a cultural artifact. And the political principle we said is that it's ultimately what's known as radical egalitarianism, that certain perspectives have been marginalized, whereas others have been privileged. And so we have to rebalance the playing field there by um, forwarding the ideas that have been marginalized and promoting them and lifting them up uh, while bringing down the volume on the ideas that have enjoyed privilege so far. This is all rooted in a deep cultural relativism that cultures don't possess the ability to judge one another. And in fact, it's impossible from one culture to another to say that one is doing something better. They're simply different. Their knowledge systems are different. So they have different knowledges um, that shapes their experience in the world. So their lived experiences are different and those are indicative of their knowledges and so on. So it's, it kind of balkanizes cultures almost completely, makes them unintelligible to one another. They're pathologically afraid of categorization, which they saw as being positivist in orientation, uh, which is a philosophical movement that preceded it during the modern period that believed that we could actually get really absolute knowledge through logic and empiricism. Um, so they, they are against categorization at all. They would say that, well, if you take men and you take women, those look like they're obvious categories. But if you look, you know, there are some pretty butch women out there and there are some pretty girly dudes and so it's not quite so clear what cat what makes a man and a woman and all of a sudden you can blur the boundaries of those categories big outsized focus on language we point out and then also they the, because of that cultural contingency at the heart of it a denial of the individual because you're not actually an individual you're conditioned by your culture you're brainwashed by your culture but also no universal humanity, because in a sense, people of two different cultures have no meaningful way to, um, to connect. So whether it's, you know, an American today and a Chinese today, whether it's a American today and a Chinese from the fifth century, whatever it is, everything about their, their culture is, it makes everything that they know and believe in their ethics contingent. There is no universal humanity behind people. There's only cultural contingency. Uh, and so this is kind of a huge, complicated summary of how postmodernism thinks about things. Um, it's not an easy question to answer what postmodernism is. It sort of resists definition. You identify in cynical theories three stages of development of postmodernism. The second right. stage seems super important. Postmodernism becomes applied. That's right. Who applies it and what effect does that have? So it turns out the answer to that question, we said social activists in the book, but the answer is actually critical theorists figured out how to apply postmodernism. So we don't have to spend a lot of time diving into the depths of, of critical theory, but critical theory, just to summarize briefly, is a movement that arose in the 1920s um, to try to explain why Marx's predicted revolutions didn't take place as Marx predicted them. Marx said that the hyper-advanced industrial societies would tip into socialism and evolve into communism through a natural historical process. Uh, he was a very, it was, he had, he subscribed to what's called historicism and believed that uh, history is very deterministic in that regard. And uh, he already he borrowed that idea from from Hegel, which is really where a lot of Marx's ideas came from. Marx kind of combined Hegel with with Rousseau. Um, and so these these critical theory guys in the 1920s are looking around and they're like, well, every attempted communist revolution has failed. There are no unified workers parties. They won't spark up a movement. The proletariat's not forming. The only place it worked was in Russia, which is 
overwhelmingly a feudal peasant society, not a hyper advanced industrial society. So something's wrong in Marx. And they wanted to figure out what. And so they shifted the analysis from economics, which they thought was too simplistic and into culture, deciding that Western culture basically had put up, you know, what you could see as like a iron gate against communism. And they identified and wanted to criticize the culture to say that the culture itself is what's keeping people basically fat, dumb, and happy rather than dissatisfied so that they'll want to be communist revolutionaries and have their utopia. And so that was really their goal. They mixed, they, they combined Marx with Freud, but also Marx with uh, Max Weber and um, probably to a degree Durkheim, uh, the sociologists at the time. They, they did a lot. They were really instrumental in the birth of the social sciences, as a matter of fact. And the they were referring to here, this is the Frankfurt School. So the Frankfurt have- School, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking in the 1920s, we're talking about people like technically not a member of the Frankfurt School, but Antonio Gramsci, the, the Albanian Italian was working with them, very communist, um, but also Max Horkheimer, Georg Lukács, who was an uh, instrumental in the Hungarian communist revolution that fell apart in 1918 or 19. Um, these guys actually started to convene first in, in Austria and then later in Frankfurt and created this Frankfurt school. And the summary of critical theory is that you have to have this idealized vision of a perfect, perfected society imperfected in the Marxian sense that it's something like the communist utopia. They eventually referred to it as liberated as a liberated democracy later by the fifties and sixties, but you have this idealized perfected society where, uh, that's, that's the end goal. Communism is the economic example of that perfected society. That becomes a normative vision. So a, a critical theory has to have all three of these elements. You have this normative vision of this perfected society, and then you're going to do critical theory by two means. That One is that you're going to complain about how the existing society falls short of that vision or is not headed toward uh, making that vision come true. Um, you do that in order to raise what's known as a critical consciousness to make people aware that there's that their circumstances are even though they're happy that they're actually unhappy because uh, <laughs> you know better than they do and then secondly it has to bring in social activism you have to as marx put it you have to have praxis which is the fusion of theory and application so critical theory when marx said you know that there are that the philosophers up to his point had had studied the world in order to understand it but the point is to change it um what the critical theorist did was separated traditional theory where the point of the of, of activity is to understand the world. And then uh, critical theory was what you use to change the world toward that normative vision of a, again, perfected, i.e. utopian society that's at the end of what really amounts to the communist rainbow. And so critical theorists started in the 1920s and 30s and became a prominent social movement. They are probably a lot of the cause of the unrest through the 1960s. That's when one of their big rock stars, Herbert Marcuse, was most prominent. He was writing things like repressive tolerance, which I talk about all the time, which has a thesis statement of movements from the left must be tolerated even if they're violent. Movements from the right must not be tolerated. In fact, they should be censored and even pre-censored so you can't even think the thought. Uh, that was That's literally in the essay. So I'm not exaggerating. That's literally his thesis statement in that essay, which is the logic going forward since 1965 of the left. Marcuse's influence is enormous. Um, So Marcuse had a student named Angela Davis. Angela Davis inspired a wave of black feminists. Um, Angela Davis is still an activist today. She works with Black Lives Matter. She's the leader of the prison abolition movement in the police uh, abolition movements right now. 
in some sense, a significant thought leader. She's very old now, of course. Um, but she inspired a raft of new so-called black liberationist feminist activists in the late 1970s going into the 1980s. She and other people within that broader movement. I don't want to put it all on her shoulders, but she's significant. Um, and they are the they. <laughs> they are the they. Uh, this is people like Bell Hooks, Kimberly Crenshaw. Over in Queer Theory, we have people like Judith Butler, uh, to a degree, Gail Rubin and Eve Sedgwick, who are picking up the tenant. And in, in post-colonial theory, as we detail, you have people like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and uh, um, what's his name, Homi Baba, picking up elements of postmodern ideas and theory and saying, wow, this is really useful for the kind of activism we're using as long as we get rid of certain parts of it. And the black feminists in particular, in kind of the Angela Davis line, see these critical theorists were picking up these ideas and running with them. And then the black feminists particularly were like, oh, well, well the problem here is that the postmodernists are willing to deconstruct everything. So they're willing to deconstruct identity. They think you can end racism by making race not mean anything. Mm. But that's a mistake because race is imposed by the power of society. So it's only an artifact of their privilege, their white privilege, that they're able to say, oh, let's deconstruct race because their argument would be that people who are um, racially oppressed don't have the capacity or luxury to deconstruct race. Therefore, now we're going to change postmodernism. We're going to pick up those epistemological tools, those culturally relativist tools, uh, and we're going to apply those to our liberationist program of critical theory, where we have a perfected society at the end of the communist rainbow that we're going to do social activism on behalf of primarily by constantly agitating and complaining about the way society isn't already perfect, according to that vision. Um, that is the birthplace of what we called applied postmodernism, that second stage of postmodernism. And I contend that you can actually read the birth of the whole thing in the introduction and conclusion of Kimberly Crenshaw's 1991 paper, Mapping the Margins. Lots of other people were talking about it, Bell Hooks, Judith Butler, et cetera. But really that paper is like the forging of the one ring. Um, and so that's, that's where applied postmodernism in some sense was properly born. And the woke movement grew out of applied postmodernism into that, uh, you haven't introduced it yet, but into that third stage that we label as reified postmodernism in the book or more simply, the truth according to social justice. Yeah, um, if, if you think it makes sense, we can turn to that third stage now, but I'll just go ahead and note that that was the first Lord of the Ring reference on this podcast. So I make a lot of them. We'll, we'll get you a t-shirt or, or, or something with yeah, that. Yeah, but, watch yourself. <laughs> but but let, me, let me pause here and ask you this. So this all sounds very philosophical so far. We're, we're citing uh -huh. Hegel and all uh, Marcuse, all these various philosophical schools, but this is what this sort of thing looks like in practice. And this is, uh, as I understand it, an introduction to an essay, uh, to a book of essays, a collection of essays. And it reads like this. These works stand at the center of the beginning of the presencing of a disharmonious, restive, unharnessable, hence unessentializable knowledge that is produced at the eccentric site of neo-post- colonial resistance, which can never allow the national, read colonial or Western, history to look itself narcissistically in the eye, end quote. Now, I've read that passage a few times. I couldn't tell you what it means. I'd imagine most people <laughs> couldn't. So let me ask you this. If these ideas are as inscrutable as they are in passages like that one, 
How have critical theory and postmodernism become so prevalent today, or are they really? Oh, they are. They certainly are. They are, they are in the water. There, there are reasons that this, first of all, that passage does mean something. It is intelligible. And so the point is that when you start to train somebody in both postmodernism and in critical theory, what you're actually teaching them to do is to read and write sentences like that, or maybe that's two sentences. I'm not totally sure. Um, and they are actually intelligible. We started out as I think you would probably know, we wrote a series of fake papers right. preceding the, the writing of, of cynical theories. That's called the grievance studies affair. We should not get derailed into talking about that again, but people can look it up. And uh, we started off the grievance studies affair believing w- like you have, that those sentences have no meaning that can't possibly be understood. So if you just kind of reproduce the sounds of them that you could pass off a hoax paper and they would publish it. And we learned that that's not the case. The hmm. sentences actually do have meaning. They're just hard to parse. Uh, and so what you have then is you have this process by which people are becoming somewhat initiated uh, into kind of a cult that, that thinks in the ways that those sentences indicate while speaking that very ecclesiastical language that the average layperson finds unintelligible, which allows them to have something. I don't want to make it out like a conspiracy theory, but there was a book written a long time ago called The Open Conspiracy, where you can technically have a conspiracy, if you will, a project done by lots of people coordinated working together, but not in the strict conspiracy sense in this case who are telling people exactly what their ideas are, exactly what they're doing, exactly what their goals are over and over and over again. But because either people won't or can't read it, they uh, don't realize that there's actually some nefarious plot going on or some huge project going on. But the way that it it actually has become so popular is is a few different things. One is that they actually took over the schools of our, of education. So where we train our teachers, probably by the early 1980s. So they were already teaching teachers to think this way and to be a little bit comfortable with the language, even if they can't speak the high Elvish, if you will. Um, maybe they can only speak a little bit. And they, the, the mindset, however, is a lot easier to, to transmit into people rather than the language. The critical mindset where you give them this idea that there are problematics in society and that finding problematics is something worth doing and becoming a social activist to correct the problematic uh, circumstances and to think in terms of systems. That's a very um, critical theory way to think. That's actually very easy to get people to do. And you can do it almost Pavlovian (laughs) in a Pavlovian (laughs) manner. Like you just reward people with likes and retweets or whatever on social media, for example, or with good grades when they, uh, when they do these things, when they, when they identify a problematic and they get 1.5 million likes on Twitter, there's a huge reward structure now in terms of dopamine. I, mean, I know likes on Twitter aren't materially worth much, but there's a huge reward structure in terms of how people think to thinking that way and behaving that way. And so it started to mainstream, especially with, with the advent of the internet, where you've now had all these teachers who've learned it, who have now primed students to see the problems in the world in a particular way and to think in terms of the problems. Another aspect is that the civil rights movement, the enthusiasm around that, the civil rights movement largely succeeded uh, or movements, plural, largely succeeded. And so all that enthusiasm to make positive change in the world remained even though the need to continue doing activism diminished. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you end up with generals in search of a war. 
you know, the general wins the war, doesn't know what to do. He's good at fighting wars. So he goes and looks for another war. That's what he's good at. And so you have all these social activists who are reaping massive, you know, psychological and sociological rewards, probably had careers, found most of their meaning in life by making change. And all of a sudden, a lot, but not all of the necessary change had occurred. And so what do you do next? Well, you take it to the next more subtle and tendentious level. Eventually you start getting massive mission creep. And again, the whole reward structure is built into this whole thing. Another one is that these people are deliberately activists. They go into the different departments, whether it's education or otherwise, and they try to spread the gospel of these views. Um, and the fourth, I would say, is actually with postmodernism in particular. I don't think very many people have read Foucault. And I know nobody's read Derrida because you can't. Um, no, not, it's quite, not quite that bad, but not very many people have read Derrida because Derrida is virtually impossible to read. I've read that. Technically, I would have to claim that I have not read Derrida. Because if you haven't read Derrida in the French, and this isn't one of these snobby things, it's that he was doing wordplay in French. I don't speak French. I don't read French. So I have not tried to read Derrida in French because it would be pointless. But he's doing very sophisticated wordplay in French that doesn't translate. And so unless you're almost native speaker level in French, it's, I've been told, absolutely impossible to properly understand Derrida. Mm. I've read a lot of other scholars who allegedly are at that level who understand Derrida. His greatest English-speaking disciple's name is Jeffrey Bennington, um, who's, I think, in the UK. And I've read quite a bit of Bennington on Derrida to understand where, what Derrida is about and what Derrida is doing. Bennington is scathing against people like Judith Butler and Spivak, who he claims completely misunderstood Derrida. Mm. But um, at any rate... Postmodernism is not something people are reading. Postmodernity is something we live in now. If you go and you read now something like, um, and I know this is going to sound deep and complicated, but if you read Jean-Francois Lyotard's book, The Postmodern Condition, he has a section within that called the, the called Legitimation by Parology, which sounds like something that has no connection to anybody's life, but legitimation by parology means that we decide the truth through the consensus of experts who may or may not actually be experts. Mm. They've all just kind of agreed. And you live this with COVID. You, you literally live this with the way that we follow the science with COVID. Follow the science or listen to science or believe science the way it's used relative to COVID policy. The way that Anthony Fauci up there is, is, is pro, uh, proclaiming the science, as it were, you know, maybe it's no masks, maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's two, maybe it's one, maybe it's none. I don't know. Who knows? Right. You know, depends on depends on what's going on. We're going to have vaccines, but we're going to be under lockdown still for like 10 more years or something. You know, th it all just changes all the time. This is legitimation by pyrology. So people are actually living in this. If you read Baudrillard's uh, simulation and simulacra, I said that backwards, simulacra and simulation, um, which is basically the motivation for the, the, movie, the movie, The Matrix. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest meme of the, of the decade? Red, red pill and blue pill, right? Are you red pilled? Did you take the red pill? That doesn't mean, did you turn Republican or do you support Trump? It means, have you unplugged from the Matrix? Have you started to see that there is a, as, as Eric Weinstein calls it, a gated institutional narrative that's being pressed upon us? Do you see through that? And so because the environment we live in where we're constantly being fed large amounts of propaganda by the powers that be and then social media allows just the enormous amount of propagation of bs and then legitimation by follower count and things like this we actually live in post-modernity you we actually live in post-modernity and so it's already going to be very intuitive whether you've ever read foucault or not 
But then when you add in, of course, that your teachers all through school have been throwing in like little sassy points, like, you know, well, that's just your opinion. That's just your perspective. Oh, we have to consider other perspectives. Have we considered the native perspective? Have we considered, you know, the indigenous perspective? Have we considered this perspective? Have we considered that perspective? And, you know, maybe they have different knowledges. Maybe they have different ways of coming to knowledge. You've been kind of indoctrinating people into this kind of postmodern way of thinking. And we live in postmodernity, which reflects it back to them. It's just going to get picked up by osmosis, whether any, I mean, if it's funny because, you know, I said, these people haven't read Foucault. Well, if they read Foucault, they'd tear the little postmodernists of today, the woke would, if they read and understood Foucault would tear apart their own movement. Foucault hmm. rips apart the woke movement, even though it's largely based off of him. Uh, it even has a whole meta narrative, which is, you know, what did, what did Lyotard say? I define postmodern simplifying in the extreme he says i define postmodern as an incredulity toward meta narratives well this has a meta narrative it's called the right side of history like we now know we all have to be on the right side of history and there's certain ways to behave and everybody has to conform tremendously and if you don't there's going to be lots of social enforcement read foucault's arguments about the panopticon where everybody's keeping each other in line and social conformity and enforcement by everybody watching each other all the time with these cameras with uh spying on your neighbor with turning in your parents for going to the capital or whatever it is we live in the world these people described and we're criticizing and it, it's shocking you know if these people actually who are the acting postmodernists of the day were to read the original postmodernists in detail and understand it they would tear apart their own movement but that's why the critical theory side is so relevant. That's why that, that radical egalitarianism in that perfected state and perfected society, liberationism, as they call it, side of things are so important to keep that from being able to happen, to, to, to keep people from understanding that the original postmodernists are not the whole story here. Yeah. So if I understand you correctly here, we have postmodernism, which begins as a skepticism about meta narratives. Mm -hmm. Postmodernism then becomes applied. Now we've reached a third stage of development in which it has become, I think your phrase is reified. It has now become a meta narrative of its own. That's right. That's yeah, where yeah. we are right now. This is preaching the gospel. That's right. The, the, over the course of basically nobody properly challenging any of these people for 40 years uh, through the academy, partly because nobody knew what they were talking about, partly because um, even if you did know what they were talking about, it seemed irrelevant. Like, oh, they're just some weirdos. Wait till they get in the real world, you know, that kind of mentality. And then partly because if you criticize them and it was effective, they would smear you <laughs> as racist or sexist or, you know, post pictures of your kids up on the faculty board or whatever and have people attack your family and your house. That actually happened to people who were speaking out against some of the early queer theory where it dipped into the trans stuff. Um, J. Michael Bailey, for example, is was targeted in that way. Hmm. Uh, if I remember, there were two researchers um, and I, names are escaping me, but Michael Bailey was one of them for sure. Um, there were lots of reasons why it didn't get challenged. So it just started and it got taught with absolute epistemic and moral authority by the people who believed it. So it just increasingly became accepted as the truth. Meanwhile, you have a receptive audience of young students who are starting to live in an increasingly critical and increasingly uh, postmodern world who are demanding it and who resonate with it. And so it just by, you know, the around 2010 at the latest just kind of became the truth. Just be, it became the culturally 
dominant way of thinking. It became hegemonic. And at that point, people operating within that space no longer have to justify themselves. They no longer have to say, according to theory, they can just say these things as, as though they are facts. Mm. Uh, it's not, there's an idea of white fragility and we can see where it shows up and this is what it would look like and blah, blah, blah. Nope. White fragility is real and you have it you know, and the feeling of defense defensiveness that you have every time we talk about race, that's your white fragility. You need to interrogate, blah, blah, blah. Even though you're like sitting there like, lady, you just accused me of stuff. I'm defensive of you accusing me of stuff. I'm, it's not the, what you're, nope, that's white fragility too. You're just in denial uh, because it's become hegemonic. And so at that point, postmodern ideas and the critical method that they fused with in the nineties became, as we said, reified. They just became the dominant description of reality yeah. and uh that allows these people as you phrase it to 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 just preach the gospel or as we put it in the book that you know we called it the truth according to social justice yeah uh, which is primarily that we're going to use postmodernism to deflect any kind of criticism we're going to advance that normative vision of critical theory and um anybody who questions us is somehow morally or epistemically deficient. They haven't properly engaged with the material. They have some selfish motive. They're, you know, they've internalized a racist or sexist or whatever system. Um, and so it's just become a, a, a reified, you know, belief system that has, as we said, a meta narrative, the, the right side of history, a moral mission, a telos, in fact, a metaphysics of how the world works. It works through discourses. Uh, which then have to be engineered to create the society that you want, because it's ultimately structuralist and or post-structuralist and it's uh, which it adopted from postmodernism, not from critical theory. Uh, it also has to be liberationist, which is another metaphysic um, that you can perfect society by constantly critiquing the problems in society rather than through, you know, some other kind of analysis, but it has to be, you know, this critical problematizing method that, actually does draw back to Hegel. Uh, and it's, you maybe don't talk about Hegel every day and your average college student probably talks about Hegel never. Uh, <laughs> but Marcuse cites Hegel on every third or fourth page of every document he wrote. So he was certainly relevant there, right? And so where these ideas were being forged and before they got put into to just everyday activism, primarily in the 1960s, Hegel, 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 every other page. Yeah. It's all over the place. You know, you can read, you can read repressive tolerance, which is, you know, 40 or 50 pages long or something like this. And you can just see it everywhere. Um, he cites Hegel. He brings up, to, he says to use the Hegelian term, bad immediacy is the one he's referring to at that point. He says, you know, the dialectic a bunch of times, he ends up saying Alfhaben directly, which was Hegel's like pet project word that was at the heart of his, his dialectic. He leaves it in the original German, you know, it's, Hegel's all throughout, it's, it's still relevant. And when I read recently, I read um, Mapping the Margins from Kimberly Crenshaw again in some detail and took my time with it. And I noticed, I was like, oh, now that I'm more familiar with the Hegelian idea, I was like, oh, she's using Hegel. She just isn't citing Hegel. She yes. cites Angela Davis. She cites Angela Davis, who was the PhD student of Marcuse, who, cites who Marcuse talked about Hegel on every cites, yeah. Hegel on every third page. Yeah. And so it's like, ah, okay, that's what's going on. So now you have this thing that has this, it has a teleology, it has a metaphysics, it has, it has a, a meta narrative, it has a, a view of the truth 
which is this perfected society and that which gets us there. Uh, rooted though in the weird, it has a the truth rooted in in subjective my truth, yeah. right? In lived experience of oppression. So are, are these new wave postmodernists and critical theorists, are, are they utopians? Uh Yes, I think I think so. Um, they're but simultaneously they're nihilists. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a confused and disorganized and contradictory uh, approach, which is funny for the outside. But if you read their own theory, they say, particularly in queer theory, um, which one Sedgwick, I believe, but it, maybe it was Gail Rubin, one or the other. We cite in cynical theories. It's been a while since I've read that chapter again, but explicitly says that, you know, leaving those contradictions in the theory is productive because it makes people not be able to resolve them, it makes them be able to think. And if we want to play the Hegel game, by the way, Hegel said everything contains its own contradiction and bringing that out is how you do the synthesis or how you do the dialectic. So again, same thing, different decade. Uh, but yes, they are ultimately utopian. When you read Repressive Tolerance at the very beginning, Marcuse says that we have to remember certain historical possibilities that have been regarded as utopian possibilities, but it's his, his argument that they are not utopian, they are historical. Well, what would a Marxist mean by historical possibilities? I wonder, you know, uh, uh, maybe a communist utopia? Yeah. <laughs> um, so ultimately, yes, they do believe that society can be wholly perfected and ideally that would be done through a state this is this is pure marx but or really it's pure hegel um they would they would they would believe that the society itself can be perfected if you get the culture right then the society will get right then it'll create the correct state and then the state will eventually as it continues to burn away all of the different contradictions and perfect itself that's utopianism by the way at that point just like Marx said, the state will realize its own redundancy and fall away and will have a perfect, what they call ideal democracy on the other side. And you hear them, the new woke people talk about that all the time. They're always like, oh, we've got to be more democratic. Uh, I was reading a book about climate justice the other day, which is its own horror story. <laughs> and they were saying about how we have to, we, use, we have to use climate change as, an, as, as a rationale to democratize economic systems. What do you think democratize economic systems means? You know, that's a lot of extra syllables to say communism. Um, and communism is ultimately utopian because it believes that there is this perfect society where everything is made equal, or now the word is equitable. Mm -hmm. Everything is made equitable. Everything is, all of the oppressions are, are relieved. I was speaking with a, a friend of mine, a PhD, a few weeks ago, and he said that in his opinion, all work that doesn't lead, this is, he's a scientist. He said that all work that doesn't lead to the liberation of every human from all suffering is a waste of time. That's utopian. Yeah. That's absolutely utopian. I, I think mean, the most way to put it, if you will, would be that they're like black pilled utopians. What is the black pill? I don't even know what the black. Pill oh, the black pill is when you've despaired that, that there's no ah. saving it. Everything, you know, it's the end of the end of the road. There are hmm. lots of pills now. I only know what five of them are. <laughs> too many pills. Maybe we'll have to do another episode on all of the various pills. But most listeners who are familiar with uh, critical theory, they're probably most familiar with the phrase critical race theory. By my reading of critical race theory, it seems insulting. Uh, you oh, cite, yeah. for example, example a Kimberly Crenshaw, I think it was, who said, right. I am black That's is right. a more meaningful and more important phrase than I am a person who happens to be black. And while the latter emphasizes the personhood of the individual, right? I am a person who is. 
The yeah. former emphasizes instead a particular characteristic of that person and says, I mean, you, no, you're not a person. You're just one black among yeah. others. Isn't that insulting? What am I missing? You're not missing anything. But what, what their argument is, is that becomes a, a fruitful site for identity politics. Okay, so what that does is it allows a coalition building around identity. It allows an identity to become a special issue, a special interest group. And so at the beginning of the same paper where she writes that, she says that one of the things that these movements realized is that the voices of many millions unified is more powerful than the voices of a few scattered here and there. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can turn oppression into a, a group project where now all black people are oppressed and all black people can identify with that oppression and want to rise up, uh, lean into that to then expose and rise up uh, against it, then you have something much more powerful than individuals who end up being discriminated against bringing their cases to the fore, wherever it happens to be. It is, in fact, though, insulting. It is that every member of each particular identity group, however we want to shred those through intersectionality, is essentially an avatar of that lived experience yeah. and they present their their ideas as a diplomat from that and of course i've trot this example out all the time and i will until i die i think is my favorite one is when kanye west his own character throws on the red make america great again hat and he says i think for myself and tana hissy coats pops up in the atlantic like two days later and is like you're not black anymore right? You are not a black, uh, according to um, Kimberly Crenshaw's definition, which we saw Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times slip over, I don't know, sometime last summer on Twitter and say, there's a difference between being racially black and politically black. Right. And that's what it actually means is, yeah. is what she's saying is that there is a difference between a politicized identity and a racial identity. Right. That's what Crenshaw is actually saying. And that politicized identity is fruitful and valuable. And she deliberately, openly in that same paragraph, cites black nationalism, which is a separatist movement, uh, as kind of the, the motivation behind her thinking. Radical lady, um, very radical lady. I mean, we saw this um, just this past week, right? The great justice Clarence Thomas has been, mm -hmm. quote unquote, canceled now, Amazon has taken down the documentary about his life. And as far as I'm aware, no explanation has been given. And yet I don't hear the critical race theorists, the intersectionalityists. Uh, what's the proper word there? The Intersectionalist. Inter the intersectionalists. I don't see them up in arms about that. No, of course not, because he has the wrong politics. So there are lots of inappropriate words we won't use for what he is, but he's not a political black. He's not a capital B political black. Uh, so he doesn't count. He upholds white supremacy. He believes in white supremacy culture, like we saw it was put out by the, the National African American Museum at the Smithsonian with, you know, properties like reliability, punctuality, precision, <laughs> getting the right answer, you know, different things like that. I don't, for, I don't remember what they all were, but it, it was yeah, hard work. It's, it's it, yeah, it's horrific to say, oh, that's white supremacy culture. And, uh, all blacks are essentialized under their experience of being something different. That's not that, you know, it's like, what are you guys doing? Do you not see what you're doing? Um, so yeah, we see this this week. Clarence Thomas is on the wrong side of politics. Therefore he is not uh, going to have anybody come to his defense because it's not actually about identity. Identity, identity is like an extra, an extra layer, if you will, 
to what's going on, but critical race theory is about politics. It's about having the correct politics, which are their politics. And if you subscribe to those politics, good. And if you happen to be black, then you're authentically black and you have the authentic black voice as, as they've claimed it. But if you don't, then bad, you know, if you're, if you're a white person or some other race that doesn't subscribe to it, then you're anti-black according to the theory. And if you are a black person who doesn't subscribe to it, you're a race traitor and probably also anti-black and you uphold white supremacy. And I mean, I just spoke with half a dozen different black individuals over the past week when I went to CPAC who have all informed me that they were told directly that, you know, they're the wrong kind of black or they're not really black or something like that. Uh, that they're white supremacists are like, I'm a white supremacist. Now everybody's a white supremacist. <laughs> and then these are all, you know, black guys who are just kind of bemused and confused and uh, with, you know, their eyes are opening now people are starting to understand it. So it's not total confusion, but that's how it thinks. That's how critical race theory believes and yeah. acts. Let, let's play a game here. A game, Uh-oh. we'll call it a game of two presidents. One president issues an executive order, which requires, quote, executive departments and agencies, our uniformed services, federal contractors, and federal grant recipients should continue to foster environments devoid of hostility grounded in race, sex, and other federally protected characteristics. Training employees to create an inclusive workplace is appropriate and beneficial. The federal government is and must always be committed to the fair and equal treatment of all individuals before the law. And a little farther down in this same executive order, therefore, it shall be the policy of the United States not to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating in the federal workforce or in the uniformed services, end quote. The next president to take office immediately rescinds that executive order. The president who signed that executive order, Donald Trump. The president who rescinded it, Joe Biden. Is the Biden administration all in on critical race theory? And what might that look like over the next couple of years? Uh, The answer to that question is yes. Uh, I would probably be yelled at for saying it without saying a qualified yes. Uh, But no, the answer is yes. Their administration is actually in on critical race theory. Everything that they talk about as far as race goes has a racial equity component to it. Racial equity is the um, equity is the fancy word, as we just discussed a minute ago, for critical race theories take on a liberated society is equitable. In other words, it's ethno communism. But uh, everything that they talk about is in terms of equity, not equality. They rescinded an order um, saying that thou shalt not, you know, racially scapegoat, stereotype, discriminate, name the country as intrinsically racist and evil. Um, etc. in in these crucial federal uh, entities. And it's impossible to conclude otherwise that these they they are in on critical race theory. They have swallowed whether Joe Biden is a critical race theorist or not is is an open question. Um, There are certainly people who are very well versed in critical race theory who work within the administration that he is appointing, however. Um, And so, yes, they are in on critical race theory, therefore they are instituting racism in violation of the 14th Amendment, in violation of the uh, Civil Rights Act, in violation in some ways of the First Amendment, as a matter of fact, 
compelling people's speech, for example, uh, certainly compelling people's belief. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian, for example, um, you probably subscribe to the famous verse. I think there appears twice in the Bible, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, et cetera. We're all one in Christ Jesus, which means you would have a very different view about uh, race and identity than critical race theory, which wants to make those more relevant rather than uh, subordinating them to a superordinate identity of Christian or American or whatever else. And so compelling you at work to have to espouse a particular view on race and racism is in fact a violation of your first amendment rights. So uh, we have a president now who has intentionally taken an action to institutionalize racism in our federal government. And so what will the consequences be? What do you think they're going to be? You know, we're going to see an increase in racism. We're going to see in the, the critical race theory is a very corrupt ideology or very corruptible ideology. It's very easy for somebody to, especially if they have particular racial characteristics to start pretending. And I'm not saying that everybody who does this, just imagine one bad actor who's genuinely a bad actor deciding I'm gonna grift this thing here's my lived experiences here's my story here's this exaggerated exaggerated maybe and or or told very selectively or whatever or maybe just fabricated even and you have to agree with me you can't disagree with me blah 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 and you can just see them grifting their way up we're going to see lots of this kind of behavior you know forcing these kinds of trainings into lots of things that taxpayers are now going to fund going to see a lot of grift off of the back of it since it's all based on subjective experience people are going to be able to make a call uh you know you could imagine somebody working in a government agency who puts forth an idea that's a bad idea the committee shoots it down but they happen to be a critical race theorist or they happen to be of a particular race and say well you only shot it down because of racism and then it's going to get instituted it's a very corruptible ideology so what we're going to see is an increase in corruption we're going to see an increase in racial salience we're going to see Mm. people squabbling over the resources that are now being dictated um we'll probably see an attempt to put reparations through. And the second you try to put reparations through for American descendants of slaves, you just watch all the other groups who decide they need their reparations too. And they're going to start making cases and fighting. It's just going to be very, very divisive. The point people don't understand the point of critical race theory, though, at the superficial level is to empower critical race theorists, and sometimes to enable their grift. The point at the deeper level, however, is it's what the Communist Party identified in the 1920s as the weapon to take over America. they recognized in the 1920s that race would be the tool. Critical race theory is the thing that was eventually developed that is succeeding uh, in exactly that effort. And so we will see the further division and uh, polarization of America around race so long as we have people trying to institutionalize it or institutionalizing it and uh, pushing it into more and more corners of life, especially behind the force of executive mandate or even eventually it will be under legislation as well with the, with a very blue Congress. Well, I know that our listeners would be uh, upset if I let you go without at least talking briefly about what we might be able to, to do to, to stop some of this. And I'm quoting mm-hmm. you here. Because these ideas are so widespread, matters won't improve until we show them for what they are and resist them, ideally by using consistent liberal principles and ethics end quote. James, could you explain that second part, ideally by using consistent liberal principles and ethics? Is that because you think these liberal principles are themselves good? Do you think they're just the most effective tools at the disposal of people looking to resist these ideas? 
What do you think? I think they're actually the right. They're probably not totally perfect on their own, but they're the right sauce to, to build a society. I think, you know, this is Madison's notes. Madison knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, well, right. Yeah. Here, here. <laughs> yeah. So the idea though, these, these basic liberal principles, like all men are created equal. This actually was a challenging idea in the 18th century and in through the 19th century. But this is something that I find people resonate with strongly today and to demand equality before the law rather than equity um, is something that people are starting to realize. So bringing up, you know, no, we're going to be equal. And equal means equal means equal. We're not going to, we're not going to cook the books one way or the other. Cooking the books in the past was wrong. Cooking the books in the, to, in the future as Ibram Kendi uh, phrases it. He doesn't phrase it that way. Actually, I shouldn't say that he, as he indicates, he says that the remedy for past discrimination is future discrimination. That's actually what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, most people say the remedy for past discrimination is stop discriminating. Right. And, those kinds of principles, like we are each individuals, while you might think that I am black has some relevance to your life, for example, and if you want to lean into that, that is your right as an individual, you have no right to hold other black individuals to that same demand, Hmm. right? You don't get to say, no, no, you're part of the so-called black community. We're a collective and you have to think as a hive. No, every individual is an individual and they're People resonate with that as well. People understand that as well. Um, so these principles there are very, very strong within within knowledge production. Um, the principle that that each person has, you know, their own ability to think for themselves. This Enlightenment rationalism, and sure, they might be wrong far more often than they're right. Most people are. In fact, I would say all people are. Um, but every person can put forth their ideas as ideas and those ideas can then be criticized as ideas independent of the identity who put them forth. And then we can do this process that we we might call philosophy or science or what the critical theorists would have called traditional theory. Um, We can do this process and that actually works. We can understand ourselves in a society, not as a collectivist society where people of certain groups have to think the same, act the same, be a particular way, express that their um, experience has been a particular way. You know, this is an interesting side point. I've talked to a lot of, again, black individuals over the past year who tell me the same thing where it's always about critical race theory. I end up on all these panels and group discussions and whatever. And they always tell me the same thing. They say, you know, well, I actually haven't experienced any racism myself or, you know, only superficial small incidents here and there. And they're relatively rare. I've actually had this really, you know, low racism life or whatever, but I'm sure a lot other people experience lots of it. And we'll call that the, the, you know, quintessential black experience and say that the critical race theorists probably have a point about that. I find very few people who actually match anything like what the critical race theory story says. Hmm. What I hear again and again, and it's not just from conservatives, but it's frequently from conservatives, which by the way, there are black conservatives, believe it or not. You're allowed to do that, it turns out, as as individuals. Uh, But what I hear again and again from people who even who have experienced racism is this country is 
actually great. The principles that are in the Declaration and in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights get it right. And it took us a long time to figure it out. We had to add a Civil Rights Act. We had to add some amendments, but we get that we we finally got there. And they can appeal to a long, a long, long line of history, right? That that gets it right. And I can say Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass gave his famous speech was in 1852 on the Fourth of July, two or three, one somewhere in there. Um, where he praises the the founders and the framers to the highest degree, praises the documents and says, but we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're not living up to it. But that doesn't impugn the liberal values. It impugns a society that wasn't living up to its own ideals. And 10 years later, we're in a civil war, shedding blood, almost tearing our country apart to end slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Martin Luther King the, a lot of people, I don't, you said you, 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 you went to Memphis, you were in Memphis, you went to, to Rhodes, right? That's right. So did you ever go down and see the monument to the civil rights movement where the mural is on the wall and they're all holding up signs, uh, depicting it, the civil rights, movement? Uh, I don't know exactly what it is. I've seen it, but, uh, they're all holding signs that say, I am a man. The yes. slogan of the civil rights movement was, I am a man. Mm-hmm. I am a man. Not I was not, I am black, right? Yeah. I am a man. I'm like you. And what we have now, that's those liberal principles. And what did Martin Luther King say, I think, in Memphis, that there was, maybe it wasn't in Memphis, it may have actually been in Birmingham, but possibly in Memphis. What did he say? That the, 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 the Constitution has written a promissory note to Black Americans that has not been fulfilled. And then what happens? The Civil Rights Act comes in to try to take the necessary steps to fulfill that. This is the thing that critical race theory wants to question. This is the thing that we're at the beginning of the book titled Critical Race Theory and Introduction, they write, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, because they have a totally different one. And then they go on in that same paragraph to say that we question the very foundations. This is a quote of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. Yeah. Americans understand that the neutral principles of constitutional law that's a liberal value are important. Americans understand that equality theory and legal reasoning, a nation of laws with the rule of law being what makes America, America in many regards, that that works, that that's good liberal values. And that certainly rationalism is better than superstition or whatever else and lived experience being a phenomenological form of, of superstition. And so people understand we can appeal back to those values. People understand that America is built on individuals who work voluntarily in teams. It's, it's individuals plus teamwork. It's not collectivism. Yeah. And the collectivism for all of the things it can achieve under certain circumstances um, is not worth the cost to our, our freedom. And it's not worth the risk when it starts to go south. Um, if you had a totally benevolent collectivist society, I'm sure it would be very efficient and wonderful in certain ways, although people would probably pine for their freedom here and there. But if it starts to go bad, it goes real bad. And it goes real bad for a lot of people real fast. Um, and so Madison, et cetera, knew what they were talking about. So those are the kinds of consistent universal liberal principles. Um, I am a man. You are a man. What your background is, I don't care. You have ideas. I have ideas. We put those ideas out. Now they're in idea space. They aren't you. They aren't me. And they can be vigorously criticized by you or me or others. We can criticize our own ideas. Go back and read something you wrote five years ago. Look how stupid you are. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) right? It's true. 
you're like, you, I, I read this about Steven Pinker at one point. He said that he was uh, reading something he had written, but he didn't realize it was him. And he was reading this thing and he's like, he was like, what a- wrote this? <laughs> and it was him. Um, it's what it is. Once the ideas yeah. are out there, they're ideas. Uh, these principles, people actually do resonate around. And the fruit is now coming uh, to bear on what's going on. You can see like the idea of putting racial putting social significance back into racial categories. I am black is more important than I'm a person who happens to be like, we can see this is not working. Yeah. And treating everybody as equals and as individuals who can think for themselves, like Kanye, I think for myself, um, it sounds kind of like Cartman. I, I think for, I do what I want, you know, but treating people as individuals was working. It actually was working. It wasn't perfect, but it was, it's, it was pointing in the right direction. So appealing back to those values works it gets us back to the foundations of this country gets us back to the the those you know at the very end of the day those three cornerstone documents the the bill of rights the constitution and declaration of independence now stated in reverse chronological order because that's how i thought of them um (laughs) in that moment so gets us back to that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them life liberty and the pursuit of happiness i mean this is not a complicated idea and it is very american to understand that that's what that's what i'm appealing to well in this podcast we are always happy to appeal back to the founding documents and our founding principles our guest today has been james Lindsay. we have been discussing his book co-authored with helen pluckrose cynical theories i encourage everyone to get a copy james there's so much more i'd like to talk with you about but i promised you one hour we've already gone (laughs) over that so i apologize but thank you so much for joining us today no it's perfect thank you Well, there you have it. James Lindsay on cynical theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. James also mentioned, though we didn't get into it, the Grievance Studies Affair. I put a link to an article about the Grievance Studies Affair in the show notes. It's absolutely worth your time. It's very entertaining and also a little bit disturbing. I've also included in the show notes a link to Cynical Theories, so be sure to check that out as well. That's a wrap for us this week. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. So with that, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.